Welcome to the DTB podcast for July 2018, volume 56, number 7. My name is David Fizakli, DTB's Deputy Editor. Hello, I'm James Cave, uh, DTB Editor-in-Chief. Our editorial this month picks up on some newspaper headlines from earlier this year that warned about life-threatening interactions between herbal remedies and conventional medicines. So what was the story? So this is an article, it was basically a bit of a search where people looked at case reports, observational studies, and just pulled together some of the concerns that we've had, particularly with those drugs with a narrow therapeutic window and herbal remedies. So were there any particular herbal products that they were interested in? So there were three in particular, ginkgo biloba, St. John's wort, and ginseng. They were the three that in particular seemed to have some evidence and some association between interactions with major drug groups. But this isn't a complete surprise. I mean, we've talked about interactions and the lack of information or detail on interactions with herbal remedies in the past? Well, this is it. I think there was nothing new in the sense of uh, information. I think this is just building a picture. We know that the use of herbal remedies is growing and that together with still this this rather sense of vacuum regarding herbal remedies, the moment we have a situation where many herbal remedies are not actually controlled in any way and also the profession of being a herbalist is also something which is not yet totally regulated. So we have this sort of uh, situation where there's a lot of uncertainty and a lot of concern about drug interactions. But perhaps one of the concerns that we raise it in the editorial is that there's now a push to stop prescribing herbal products through primary care. So whereas before you might know from your clinical system that somebody is taking a herbal product, once that stops, there's even less chance that primary care clinicians will know what people are taking unless they interrogate them quite closely. Oh, this is it, and I think this is the point that if you talk to a lot of consultants or physicians involved in transplant surgery or oncology, they are very aware of possible interactions and often will spend some time asking about this sort of thing and working with uh, clinical pharmacologists to find out what the issues might be. But as you say, increasingly now herbal remedies won't be something that you'll see on the GP system and therefore it's an area that we've got to be much more alert to. So the combination of uncertainty around the evidence, uncertainty around the potential for interactions and uncertainty about who's taking what, do we have a kind of bottom line as to what we suggest might be a practical way forward? Well as you might imagine um, you're absolutely right you know we have a group of treatments herbal remedies are by no means uh, safe and if they were of some enormous benefit or even of some benefit then obviously you have a benefit risk balance to make but in the absence of that in the absence of really any demonstrable benefit at the moment what we're looking at here is a lot of risk with no benefit and therefore our bottom line is that really for, for some patients the simplest and best thing to do is to avoid taking herbal remedies. So if you're on a complex regime or on drugs with a narrow therapeutic index, try and avoid the herbs. Absolutely. Okay, thank you very much. Our first main article reviews a, another new drug for multiple sclerosis. We've seen quite a few launches of new drugs for MS over the last few years. What's the new one? 
So this is okra lizumab, which is a recombinant uh, humanized monoclonal antibody. Um, as you say, it's actually the, the first drug that's been licensed for early primary progressive MS and relapsing forms. And it's the first drug that's sort of been licensed for this. I think, uh, as you say, about 11 drugs, I think, now licensed for management of MS. So it's it's obviously, I think it did hit the newspapers when it was uh, first launched. So it's the, the, the big selling point or the big news item is that it's the first one for primary progressive MS. How is it given? So this is intravenous infusions every six months, basically. And it's that's one of the issues with it. You do get quite an infusion reaction. So patients have to take a big dose of methylprednisolone at the same time to try and reduce that. So methylpred and antihistamine at the same time. Yeah. And, and even, I think they talk about giving an antipyretic as well. So Indeed, yeah. Concerns over... Uh, its administration. So let's cut to the evidence in relapsing MS. Yes, so the evidence is sort of divided into relapsing and primary progressive. And in the relapsing evidence, we've got two studies which basically had the same design and they compared ocrelizumab with interferon beta-1a. Relatively lung population in the studies, mean age about 37, and they looked at patients who'd had at least two relapses in the past year. About 1,600 patients, four years duration, and they compared IV ocrelizumab with interferon beta-1-alpha. And the primary outcome measure was the annualized rate of relapse. And what did that show? So they found that the rate of relapse was less in the monoclonal antibody group, about 0.16 versus 0.29 in the interferon group. To make that perhaps easier to understand, if you were on ocrelizumab, you might expect one relapse every six and a half years, whereas if you were on interferon beta, you would expect one every three and a half years. So reduces the, the relapse rate and also showed the other outcome measure, it's usually a secondary measure of progression of disability that was also reduced? Yeah, so they, they used this expanded disability severity scale. So as you might imagine, very often in these studies when they're looking at things like disability, they will have quite a complex um, scoring system. So it showed a reduction in disability progression in the group on ocrelizumab. And then for primary progressive MS, compar yes. compared with? Sorry, this was just with placebo, and this was just one trial, 700-odd patients, but it was um, a minimum of 120 weeks duration, and the primary outcome was just disability progression at 12 weeks using the same sort of um, disability scale. And what they found was actually ocrelizumab had a reduced disability progression. It was modest, but it was clinically and statistically significant compared to placebo. So, and therefore the excitement is that here's something that actually has been shown to make a difference in this group of patients for whom nothing else is available. Absolutely right. That's the big thing. Harms? So adverse effects, yes, common in all these groups of drugs. As you might imagine, infection risk is a big issue. Ocrelizumab was initially programmed to be used in rheumatoid arthritis, and they actually closed down that program because of concerns of serious infections. As we've said earlier, you get reactions to the infusion itself, despite using high doses of steroids and, and antihistamines. There is a concern there is an association between breast cancer, 0.28 per 100 patient years in the ocrelizumab versus about half that, 0.14 in the interferon group. And so some of these concerns 
although they're just concerns at the moment are being followed up in risk monitoring plans. Absolutely. So part of the licenses, there'll be um, further uh, monitoring of these sorts of conditions. Cost? About £20,000 a year, 19160 to be precise. So it's an expensive drug, but uh, much in line with a lot of the other drugs that use in this, this condition. And at the moment, no published national guidance? No, Canada supports it, and NICE is planning a technological appraisal later. So NICE is going to look at both primary progressive and relapsing remitting MS? Yeah. Okay, thank you very much. And our second article this month reviews the use of metformin, uh, this time in type 1 diabetes. We're all familiar with its use as a first-line treatment for people with type 2 diabetes, and we know that some clinical guidelines make a reference to its use in type 1. So what's the interest in it? So uh, this is, it is, as you say, it goes all the way back to the UK PDS study, which is um, decades old, I think, isn't it? Which was uh, basically in a subgroup analysis in that study, it found that overweight patients with type 2 diabetes who were taking metformin had less diabetic complications, had less diabetic-related deaths, and had less MIs. And this led to the idea that metformin in type 2 diabetes is a good thing and, and uh, some very wise doctors have talked about it giving your heart a sort of therapeutic hug and this has led to the idea well perhaps if if metformin works well in type 2 why don't we try it in type 1 patients particularly in those that are overweight since metformin is one of the few diabetic drugs that actually will see some weight reduction in many patients. So we've got some systematic reviews uh, of metformin in, in type 1 diabetes. What sort of outcomes and what sort of effects did they show? That's right. So we've got some earlier studies. I think in 2010 there was a systematic review of about nine uh, randomised control trials and more recently a further meta-analysis. They showed that there probably was no reduction in HbA1c's but you might see a reduction in insulin dose in patients taking metformin. And you might see a reduction in weight as well. But the sort of magnitude of insulin dose change that you might see was really quite small. Yes, we're talking about perhaps six units in a day, something like that. Now we have a more recent study, the, the removal study. What was that? So this was a multi-sender, double-blind, placebo-controlled, randomised trial. And it compared patients who were taking metformin one gram twice a day for 36 months versus those on just a placebo. And the primary outcome was not a clinical outcome? Yes, this was this mean carotid intimal thickness. So this is a um, scan of someone's neck and you measure the thickness of the carotid artery intima and, and the idea behind it is a sort of proxy marker for the level of atherosclerosis you might have. So that is the primary outcome. I don't think showed a difference? No, not at all. So now we're relying on secondary outcomes in a study that's already negative. And what did they show? So, yeah, so the secondary measures were issues like insulin requirement, HbA1c, weight, and their LDL cholesterol levels. And what the study showed that, yes, there was a marginal reduction in weight, about a kilo in most patients. LDL levels were slightly reduced. We're talking about a, a tenth of one millimole per litre. And there was also reductions in average insulin dose as well. But perhaps what seems to be emerging is that it's not quite the promise that we'd first hoped, that, that the, the hope from the meta-analysis, which we discussed earlier, 
hasn't really translated into something that this clinical trial has shown a benefit in. No, and, and also we have the issues around adverse effects. There were more of those in the group taking metformin. And the other issue with metformin is this, this funny one regarding vitamin B12. And although the SPC, the summary of product characteristics for formin, suggests this is a very rare issue, less than one patient in 10,000, in the removal study, they found that 12% of patients taking metformin were B12 deficient compared to only 5% in the placebo group. So perhaps if nothing else, this, this study highlights that there may be a role for checking people's B12 if they've been on metformin for some time. Well, it's a significant issue, isn't it? We're talking about a number needed to harm with regard to vitamin B12 deficiency of 14. So I think it is something that's flagged up. I think a lot of clinicians are sort of aware of it from previous studies, but this has flagged it up again as something, you know, perhaps we need to be looking at this. OK, thank you very much. To read these and any of our articles, please visit our website at dtb.bmj.com. Thank you very much. <laughs>